Good morning, College Park. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles or devices to Philippians 3. Our scripture reading for today will be verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything otherwise, excuse me, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Will you join me in prayer? Father, you are a great God. You are an incomparable God. You are mighty, all-powerful, wise, all-knowing. Father, you are worthy of all our praise. And you are worthy of all glory and honor. What a delight it is to be able to join with others who love you, who rejoice in you, who want to worship you, who want to know you more, who want to make you known. Father God, will you continue to intensify our worship of you, intensify our passion and our longing to know you. And as we enter this hour to continue our time of worship in the hearing of your word being taught, being preached, being explained. May we listen to you. Open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to see, to hear and to understand. Father God, not that we would simply be puffed up with knowledge, but that we would indeed be effectual doers of your word. To your glory, to your honor, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to open this morning by telling you a story. There once was a man named Jed. And he was a poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. And one day when he was shooting at some food, up from the ground came some bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. And the first thing you know, old Jed, he's a millionaire. The Ken folks said, Jed, move away from there. And they said, California is the place you ought to be. So he loaded up his truck and he moved the family to Beverly Hills. Correct? You remember this show? The Beverly Hillbillies. And what made this sitcom so funny was the fact that these hillbillies had become rich. And yet their lives never changed. They brought their hillbilly ways into the upscale community of Beverly Hills. They lived in their mansion, but they wore the same clothes. They continued in the same practices, and that created a sitcom that made many people laugh. But that situation is not funny in the church. 
Paul, earlier in chapter 3 here, last week, we went through verses 1 through 11. And in this passage, we see the radical change in Paul's life. Paul is giving confession and testimony about the radical change that has occurred in his life because of his union with Jesus Christ. That Christ had seized him on the Damascus road and changed his life forever. The expectation when our lives are changed is that we would be different. That our lives would be different. That our desires would be different. That our motivation, that our pursuit, that our goals, our purposes would all be different. When the riches of God's gracious gospel are given to you and you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit, then there is an expected change. And in chapter 3, Paul has just described his radical change. He's gone from seeing his Jewish heritage and the achievements as remarkable features of his life to seeing them as rubbish compared to that of knowing Jesus Christ. He now wants to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ, to know the power of His resurrection, to share in His sufferings, to become like Him in His death, And by whatever means, he wants to attain the resurrection of the dead because he knows that when he appears before Christ, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And because we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And Paul longs to know Jesus more fully. He longs to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. In light of the radical call on Paul's life on that Damascus road, Paul's entire goal and pursuit has changed. By nature, he is now a new creation. He does not have a righteousness of his own that, if possible, could be gained by adherence and obedience to the law. But he now has a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He now has an alien righteousness, the righteousness of God. He is new by nature. He is new by creation. He is born again. He has a new identity that's wrapped up in his union, his baptism into Christ Jesus. He has profoundly changed. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul explains how his present life is in pursuit of knowing Christ more fully. Many of us work at jobs and we have enjoy developing skills in our lives where we enjoy looking at successful people in our area and we want to know how do they live out their lives. What are the things that they do? What are their practices? How do they approach work? How do they approach developing their skill? How do they keep up? We, we want to know the, the lives of successful people. As a pastor, I love reading biographies on pastors and theologians because I want to know how do they balance life? How do they balance home and church, ministry? How do they spend their time? And what we get in these passages is we get insight into Paul's own approach to his spiritual growth. Paul is giving us insight into his approach to becoming more like Christ to knowing Christ more fully, to the day-to-day pursuit of Christ. And in so doing, he is exhorting us to exercise the same approach. And so we see 
in these verses, we see five features that must characterize our approach to spiritual growth. Five features that must characterize our approach to spiritual growth. And the first one is this. Pursue Christ with an accurate knowledge of yourself. Pursue Christ with an accurate knowledge of yourself. Look at verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already attained this. The one thing Paul knows about himself is that he is in progress. Paul acknowledges that he does not yet fully know Christ. When he says, not that I have already attained this, this refers to what was previously said in verses 8 through 11. Namely, to know Christ. Paul does not want anyone to think that he has gained that which he so earnestly seeks. Now, there could have been false teaching that had been going on during that time that may have have come from, one, people assuming that based on Paul's testimony that he was saying that he had arrived, that that in some way he was already perfect and that he was in need of nothing. Or maybe there were the Judaizers who were saying, you would be perfect if you added to your faith in Christ the obedience to these laws and to these ceremonies and to these things, then you'll be perfect. Or, or maybe he was answering that of the Gnostics who said, you know, we can gain a certain amount of knowledge. We, we can gain in this lifetime perfect knowledge of who God is and we can gain perfect sanctification that in this lifetime I can be perfectly sanctified and holy. Or maybe he was refuting the antinomians who basically were against the law, who basically simply just said, hey, look, we have Christ. That's all we need. We're saved. There's nothing else that we need to do. There's no need to obey and, and, and to develop Christ-like character in our lives. Paul refutes all those claims. He refutes all those claims in simply saying that I have not already obtained this or am I already perfect. He acknowledges not only does he not fully know who Christ is, but that he also is not fully sanctified Not that I'm already perfect. He doesn't want anyone to think they can be perfect in this lifetime. And perfect refers to being complete and mature in Christ. Paul knows he is not. He recognizes his own shortcomings and his own sin, his own inadequacies. He knows he has not completely put to death sin in his life. He debunks any thought that we may be perfectly sanctified in this life. So like Paul, we must recognize that we have not arrived, but that we are in a state of progress. See, it should never surprise us when we listen to the Word of God being preached, or when we read the Word of God, or we're in a Bible study, or we're just interacting with other people, that anyone might actually find something we're doing to be wrong. Right? That should never shock any one of us. Because there's a presumption within us that if we stand before the Word of God being preached, we stand before the Word of God being read, we stand before others who may be counseling us, and we basically say, there is nothing that you're going to see, there's nothing that you can ever say that is in some way going to say that I'm wrong. Then that presumes that we think we're perfect. And that we're in no need of correction. That we're in no need of adjustment. And so the very first thing that Paul brings up is this recognition, this acknowledgement of of being aware of who we truly are. Namely, we are people who are in 
progress. We are people who are in progress. And since that is true, then we must pursue Christ with all our might. This is the second feature of our approach to spiritual growth. Pursue Christ with all your might. Paul says that he has not obtained perfect knowledge or sanctification. And so by implication of that truth, Paul then says, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Paul resolves to live a life of pursuit. He knows he hasn't obtained Christ fully. And so he pursues it with all his might. From the world of war and the world of athletics... Paul uses aggressive and violent language here to describe his approach to spiritual growth. Look with me in verse 12 when he says, But I press on. Press on means to follow or press hard after, to pursue with earnestness, to pursue with diligence in order to obtain and to go after something. And then he says, I pursue to make it my own. And the word make it my own means to obtain the prize with the idea of eager and strenuous exertion. To grasp and to seize upon. The Septuagint uses these words for Exodus 15.9, which says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. This is a nitty, gritty, rough, and tumble approach that Paul is describing for himself. That with all my might and with all my strength, I long for it. I lust after it. I want to know Christ. And so I pursue with all my might. Paul resolves to live a life of pursuit. And he recognizes that Christ is the one who originated this pursuit. See, was the reason for the pursuit to earn favor with God? Was it to earn His salvation? Was it in some way to merit His salvation? Absolutely not. Not at all. It was because Jesus had made Paul His own. Gordy says, this is an incredible passage. I press on to make it my own because Christ, Jesus, has made me His own. Oh, to just meditate on that wonderful thought, that wonderful truth, that Jesus Christ has made me His own. Christ sought after Paul and made him His own. Christ had arrested his heart and made him a child of God. Paul was a recipient of God's elective grace. This whole passionate, nitty-gritty, rough-and-tumble pursuit began when Christ seized him on that Damascus road. Do we often think about God's pursuit of us? Do you you think about God's pursuit of you that before the foundation of the world, that God had you in mind? That before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Him. If we're a follower of Christ, if we have put our faith in Jesus, then we were first sought after by Jesus. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you. Like Paul, we are to pursue Christ with all our might. 
would you say that you are? What do you do with your thoughts or wants? Do you subject them to rigorous testing? Do you cut them off at the knees? Those thoughts and those desires. Now again, most certainly we need to address our speech and our behavior, but underneath that are our thoughts and our desires, our motives, our wants, our heart. And when we sense a longing for something that is impure, do we deal with it at that moment? Do we cut it off at the knees? Do we sense our heart gravitating towards something sinful, gravitating towards something that is selfish? And then will we, with great passion and with great might, say, No! Do we talk to ourselves or do we let ourselves talk to us? I want to commend to you, please develop the art and the skill of talking to yourself. Don't do it audibly. I could get you in a lot of trouble. But talk to yourself. Counsel yourself from the Word of God. Change your thinking. Change your wants. Change your desires. Because you want to know Christ and you want to know Him fully. And so you want to obliterate anything that would hinder you from that pursuit. Now, Paul does not go into details in this passage because this is not what he's addressing about about what is to be changed or, or the practical aspects of spiritual growth. He is addressing our approach to spiritual growth. But Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, brings some more clarity to this whole aspect of spiritual growth and some of the practical aspects and details while at the same time describing our approach. And so if you would turn with me to 2 Peter, I guess in, in our day and age we now have to say turn or tap, right? So if you'll turn or tap with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look briefly at verses 3 through 11. In 2 Peter, chapter 1, Peter provides us, again, with some more detail to this pursuit of Christ. Verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have been seized by Christ, and we have been made His own. So then he says in verse 5, For this very reason... So once again, there, there is an expectation because of our new nature, because of our, our being recreated, because of our new birth, because of our new identity. There is an expectation that you would be longing for knowing Christ and becoming more Christ-like. And so for this very reason, because of who you are, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. You've been brought into and have had Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith. And now that this is who you are, then make every effort to supplement that faith. And the word for make every effort, it means to get to it right away and to do it with all your mind. Get to it and do it with everything you have. We have a right standing with God through faith, and so we supplement our faith 
first with virtue. And what he means by virtue is a moral courage. There is a moral courage that you desire to do that which is right. You love God. Your your whole entire creation, your whole disposition, your whole direction in life is completely changed. And you want Christ. And you want more of Him. And you want to know Him more. And you want to be more like Him. But, virtue isn't enough. It's one thing to want to do the right thing. We have to know what the right thing is. And so we add to virtue knowledge. But now we know what the right thing is to do. But now... I realize that there's a battle between the flesh and between the spirit. And I know what the right thing is to do, but oh my goodness, there's this uh, yearning in me that doesn't want to do the right thing, but wants to do my thing, but not the God thing. And what does that take? It takes self-control. That's the willingness to place myself under myself and to control what I do in the power supplied to us by God through the Holy Spirit. But self-control is not enough either. I mean, matter of fact, I think it was May 18th, roughly somewhere around 3.23 p.m. I was patient. Right? I'm a patient person. 3.23 p.m. last year, May 18th, I was patient. See, using self-control one time doesn't change anything. And that's why we have to add, if you look in the text, we have to add to self-control, we have to add steadfastness. It's that continual tenacity and perseverance in persistently utilizing, using self-control based on our knowledge, based on our moral courage to do the right thing, all because of faith in Jesus Christ. And then what does he say? That from self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. In other words, as we continue this process, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Again, another verse that helps us realize we are not in a perfect condition. That we are indeed in process. We are progressing and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And even when we think, yeah, I don't see how I can become more like Jesus Christ than I am today. Boy, once you think that, man, you're dead in the water. (laughs) You must excel still more. Matter of fact, Paul looked at the Thessalonian church and he said, you are a wonderful church. And he listed all these wonderful qualities. They were a church that got it. But what did he say to them? Excel Still more. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, he's so nearsighted that he is blind. There's a sense that he forgets who he is, having forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. To confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're pursuing. Now, please understand that if you were to die today without growing any more and you're in Christ, you are immediately ushered into heaven with Him. He makes up all the difference. 
We're all at a different point. We're all at a different aspect of, of being sanctified because we're all in progress. The ongoing activity is inseparably associated with our vigorous pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so to pursue Christ, we first recognize that we are a work in progress. We have not arrived. And by implication, that we live a life of strenuous pursuit. By the way, this is why we must depend on God and His resources. See, when we understand what is expected of us, it should drive us to the graces of God. That when I understand, see, when you listen to this and you say, wow, that's all really good, but man, that's hard to swallow. To, to, to be strenuously, constantly in pursuit? Is there just no time to just rest? <laughs> really? And the point is, is that we should feel the weight of that. We should feel the weight of that. And, and that weight should then drive us to the cross. The weight should then drive us to corporate fellowship and corporate worship, singing the praises of God with other believers. It should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to seeking prayer from other people. It should drive us to pray for one another because we're all in this together. It should drive us to Bible study. It should drive us to the graces of God because we need them. The reason why many of us do not avail ourselves to the graces of God is just simply because we don't sense the weight of what is expected of us as new creations, as being in Christ. So when we see that our lives are to be light in Christ, then we see why we need each other, why we need prayer, why we need Bible study and corporate worship. And we see this more clearly when we see that not only does pursuing Christ require all our might, but it also requires all our attention and focus. The third feature of our spiritual growth and our approach to it is that we pursue Christ with focus. We pursue Christ with focus. Look what he says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead, or forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul has a singular focus. One thing I do, and the one thing he does is in verse 14, I press on. The one thing I do is that I press on. Again, he reminds us of, of his situation again. He uses the term brothers as an intention getter. It is a term in, of endearment, but he's saying, in case you haven't gotten this, brothers, I want to emphasize that I haven't arrived. I am, like you, in progress. And he uses that term, brothers, this may be equivalent to a, a mother calling her child by her first and middle name. You know, Andrew Dean, right? It's a term of endearment for sure. But it's also an attention getter. And Paul's wanting to draw their attention. He does not want there to be any mistake that he is indeed a man in progress. And that is why he presses on. That is why he has one thing. I press on. He continues to emphasize this. Straining forward to Christ is Paul's singular pursuit. And here again he uses the imagery of athletics. 
more specifically and most likely a foot race. A maximum effort without focused concentration is useless. Runners in a race must fix their eyes ahead of them. Those who watch the crowd, watch their feet, are bound to trip and fall. Matter of fact, I, I never much of a runner, never coach running either, but I coach baseball. And I tell you, I can't, I don't know how many times I had to say the phrase, don't look at the ball. Okay? You know, they hit the ball. I mean, this is one of the bad things about ESPN and the top 10, you know, because it's like they hit it and they're like, oh, is that a top 10? You know, you know, it's like they want to know. They stand there, just look at the ball. Don't look at the ball. Run, right? Run. You know, or some kids, they hit the ball and it's like, mom, look, you know, it's like, no. Run. When we look aside, when we look behind us, we lose focus. We lose concentration. To make a maximum effort in any athletic endeavor requires concentration on a point straight ahead. Hebrews 12 reminds us, Lay aside every weight, sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And this singular focus is marked by two things. When he says, the one thing I do, the one thing is verse 14. I press on toward the goal. But he describes his singular focus. He describes the one thing. How does he go about pressing on? He goes about pressing on by doing two things. The one thing is intentional amnesia. Intentional amnesia. Paul's not saying that we somehow seek to wash our minds of any previous memory. His point is that he is always dealing with the now with a look to the future. In our pursuit of spiritual growth, we have to look at the now. Be concerned with where I am now toward the future. Not where I have been, but instead where am I now? Paul made a break with everything in his past, both good and bad. Spiritual achievements, virtuous deeds, great successes in ministry, as well as sins, missed opportunities, and catastrophes must all be forgotten. We mustn't dwell on them or in any way think our past determines who we are. Our past does not determine our identity of who we are today in Christ. Our past does not control the present and it does not control the future. We cannot live on past victories, nor should we be debilitated by the guilt of past sins. Many of us have been crippled or even paralyzed by the grudges, bitterness, sins, and tragedies of the past. Some try to survive in the present by reliving past successes. We must forget what lies behind if we are to pursue Christ God is interested in what we do now and in the future. No one, declared Jesus, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The clearest vision belongs to those who forget the past. Runners are aware of how dangerous it is to turn their heads and to look behind them. And since we don't think we've arrived due to past successes, we must also realize that pursuing Christ is marked by holy dissatisfaction. I'm not content with where I am, and I do not spend time dwelling on past failures or successes. 
Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, Humble dissatisfaction opens us to the blessings of God and to the sublime cycle of dissatisfaction and satisfaction and dissatisfaction and satisfaction. It brings on a life that knows more and more of Christ and then desperately wants to know more and indeed does know more and more and more and more. Spiritual dissatisfaction is a blessed state. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do we long to know God better? The fact is that the more we progress and grow in Christ, the more we recognize our need to grow. If there was one thing I learned in college, it was from a professor in my freshman year, and he, he taught this one thing, and it's just one thing I remember. And basically what he said was this, you've all come out of high school and you all think you know everything. And he drew this circle on the board. And he said, this encompasses all that you think you know. And because you think you know everything, the circle of ignorance is actually the same circle. Because you don't realize how much you don't know. And then he says, the more knowledge you gain, he talks about now after you receive a bachelor's degree, that circle of knowledge grows. But what also grows is the space between the circle of ignorance and the circle of knowledge. In other words, you begin to know how much you don't know. And then when you get your master's, oh, that circle gets bigger, but so does the area of ignorance. And the more you grow and the more you gain, the more you realize you don't know. So you have to understand that, to a certain extent, is one of the natural consequences of growing in Christ is the realization of knowing how much you don't know. And if you think, I don't know enough, good. I joke about the fact that that's why eternity is so long. Because <laughs> that's how long it's going to take. See, sometimes we forget that He's an infinite God. Do you understand He's always existed? That will make your brain hurt. (laughs) Trying to figure that out. It's such a good place to be. To recognize that we're in progress. But our response to that is not woes me, not self-pity, not I'm just going to throw in the towel. But instead, Paul says no. Pursue Christ with all your might. Pursue Christ with all your might and pursue Him with concentrated focus. And so not only on the negative side we forget the past, but on the positive side, Paul says, strain forward to what lies ahead. So Paul's pursuit is marked by intentional amnesia and it's also marked by intentional aim. Like the runner who has the finish line in sight, Paul describes the runner with his body stretched out with intense passion for the goal. Our pursuit of Christ is singular in focus. It's marked by intentional amnesia and aim. My eyes are focused on what lies ahead, never satisfied until I get it. And this isn't some subjective, woes me, self-pity aspect that Paul's doing. You know, I've not arrived. I'm not as good as you might think I am. And that's not what Paul's doing. Because it's objective. It's factual. Why is it objective and factual? Simple. 
He hasn't attained the resurrection from the dead. And neither have we. And until that time, we're in progress. And we have room to grow. And we want to continue on. And so he says that one thing, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he presses on with the right goal in mind. And this brings us to our next feature of our approach to spiritual growth, and that is pursue Christ with the right motive. Pursue Christ with the right motive. Paul says that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul continues to show his relentless pursuit. The word toward, it means that Paul is bearing down on his goal. Paul was bearing down toward the goal of rising above sin, of knowing Christ more and making him known throughout the world. Everything about Paul's disposition and pursuit is heavenly. Later he's going to say in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is pursuing Christ for a lifetime so that he might say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And but the end of the race, there is that long-anticipated prize. This prize is not for those who have accomplished anything except put their faith in Jesus Christ and persevered in doing so to the end. Marked by a life, not of incredible achievements, but of a relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ. Paul was motivated by the prize of his calling. He says, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a heavenly call. It originated in heaven and it is toward heaven. The direction, the goal, the purpose of our life has changed. We have been born again. We are born from above. We are a new creation. Our entire disposition has changed. Our motivation has changed. He has made us His own for this. He has called us to this. The call on our life is from heaven. It is toward heaven. It's a call of God in Christ Jesus. This call is inseparably connected to our union with Christ, to our identity. We do this because it's who we are. It's, we don't do this because it's some optional thing. Oh, now that you're in the church, you can do this if you'd like. No, we do this because this is who we are. This is the church. This is what it means to be a child of God. That I'm in constant, vigorous pursuit with concentrated focus, with the right motivation, because I want Christ. That's the goal. That's the purpose. That's what Paul is saying. We want the prize. We want the resurrection from the dead. We want to see Christ face to face. We want to be found in Him. And that is what motivates him. And that motivation then keeps him and should keep us steadfast. The fifth feature of our pursuit of Christ is that we pursue Christ with tenacity. We pursue Christ with tenacity. In verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, Paul's saying, those who are mature in their thinking are those who realize they live in constant pursuit of Christ. The mature ones are not the ones who are perfect in Christ in this case, but the mature ones are the ones who realize they're not. And that they're in a constant pursuit of Christ. They realize they're not perfect. They know they're perfectly justified. They know that. They know they're perfectly justified in Christ. And that they no longer live under God's wrath. But they know they are incomplete in their sanctification. 
God is faithful to complete the work that He begins in us. For some, that's a fast track. If you think about the thief on the cross, right? I mean, there's a sense here that we should look at this whole aspect of spiritual growth with such privilege, with such delight. It's the idea that if if you were a professional runner and you got the invitation to some big meet, that you are just happy that you are there, right? You're running around the track and you're just like, yeah, man, I can't believe I'm here. This is awesome. You know, it's almost like you don't care if you win or lose. It's just the joy of being there. There's a sense that the fact that we have been called by God, there's this joy, there's this rejoicing, there's this incredible excitement that we belong to Christ and we belong to His church. That we actually have the privilege of pursuing Christ. See, we have the privilege of pursuing Christ. We have the privilege of of knowing that we're in progress. But there's a sense where I'm satisfied where I'm at, but I'm or, or my estate in Christ, but I'm not satisfied where I am in the race. I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely joyful that I'm in the race, but I'm not content where I'm at in the race. And so for many of us, this is a long and arduous road of pursuing Christ and becoming more like Him. But it is such a road and such a race that is worth running. Moses thought so. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. The man in the parable of treasure thought so. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And Paul thought so. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Mature thinkers know they're not as holy in their thinking and behavior as they could be. They know they don't know Christ fully. Therefore, they live in this constant, vigorous pursuit of knowing Christ, being Christ-like, and putting Christ on display for the world to see. The relentless pursuit is not only for their own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. See, it's not only do do I enjoy knowing Christ more and and becoming more Christ-like, but I also enjoy it because of the effect it has on other people's lives. Before coming to Christ, I began to attend a youth group, but I wasn't a believer. I started going to church, and there was a man there who loved me so dearly. He knew my condition. And he sought me out. And he loved on me. He cared for me. He proclaimed the gospel to me. And there was one thing that he always said to us. He always said, you must understand that you may be the only Jesus people see. See, many of us might be in despair because we're the only believers in our family. We may be in despair because we're the only we're the only believers at work. We may be in despair because we're the only believers in our neighborhood. Please don't be in despair. You may be the only Jesus 
that they see. We pursue spiritual growth, yes, for a good proper love of ourselves and a delightful, worshipful love of God. But we also pursue it for the love of others. Because we want to grow in Christ Jesus and we want to know more about Him so that we can better proclaim Him to the world. And Paul goes on to say, give some encouragement here, that God will graciously correct those who may have flaws in their thinking. He says there in verse 15, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul trusted that the Spirit of God would guide his people into truth. Paul trusted that as God's people assess themselves accurately, pursue Christ vigorously with concentrated focus, with the right motivation, and with persistent tenacity, that God would continue to guide them into all truth and grow their knowledge. And then Paul says, practice what you already know. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, Practice what you already know. That's what he says in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That word hold true means to walk in step. It's the same word that's used in Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. With tenacity, we are to continually walk in obedience to what we already know. And as we grow, we will walk in obedience to what we now know. And so on. And so on. I mean, that's the great progress of spiritual growth that you apply and you practice what you know and then you learn more and you practice then what you know and then you learn more and then you practice then what you know and then you learn more and what is happening to your life you are becoming more like christ and you are getting to know him more and more This kind of steadfastness will produce Christ-likeness. And again, to be clear, Paul is not describing specific practices for pursuing Christ, but a specific approach to spiritual growth. A disposition of vigorous pursuit of Christ and steadfast persistence in that pursuit. One of the great quotes that that I appreciate is, is from Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards in in his memoirs, had had just a wonderful thing to say about the entire dissatisfaction, but yet satisfaction in Christ. He says, I felt then great satisfaction as to my good estate, but that did not content me. I had vehement longings of soul after God and Christ, and after more holiness, wherewith my heart seemed to be full and ready to break. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When Christ returns, may He find us running. And before I close in prayer, if there is a need that you would love for someone to pray for you. There are going to be some folks that are up here at the close of service that would be readily available to pray with you. And also, if you have any questions about what does it mean to be in Christ, what does it mean to put my faith in Jesus Christ, and by all means, please come and talk with some of these 
dear brothers and sisters. And also, a while back we had introduced to you um, the Ramadan prayer guides. This is a helpful resource in praying for Muslims during Ramadan. And if you would like one of those, and those are available out through the doors and in our foyer area out there. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you. We're so grateful for the life that you have called us to live. What an incredible privilege to be in the race of pursuing Jesus Christ. That we might be in the race of knowing Christ more fully and becoming more Christ-like in all we say, think, and do. To you be the glory and all honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved church, know that you are loved and appreciated, and by all means, let us keep on running.